I'll use these. Most awkward sermon of the year, and we get to start off with technical difficulties, right? Sure is good to be here with everyone. Um, a lot has changed since the Bible was written, hasn't it? There are certainly things that haven't changed. Boys grow into men, and they start chasing girls for different reasons than they did in their early years. Girls grow into women, and they start enjoying being chased, even if you can't tell it from the outside. But for every similarity, it seems like there have been a hundred changes. I want you to imagine a, a fictional young man with me for just a second. We can call him Chuck. I was trying to think of a name that no one would share, you know, so no one would get offended. Um, his story would look pretty different depending on the time and history that he grew up. You know, 2,000 years ago, this young man would have been educated. Say he was a, he was a Jew, he would have been educated in the synagogue with other boys. He would have spent six half days per week there learning writing and arithmetic, um, but mainly he would study spiritual things, the Torah. The girls would have been educated at home where they were taught by family members, and at around 18 years old, his family would have picked out for him a, a young woman to marry. She probably would have been 14 or 15. She would have just hit puberty and been able to start bearing children. And, they would have gone through a year-long engagement process. They would have married as teenagers and began their family in that same community, pursuing the same profession as their parents. And while I can imagine that year of engagement would have been a very difficult and sometimes excruciating year for both of them, given the lack of opportunity and the extreme social pressure towards virginity at marriage, there wasn't much they could do about it. And so that kind of is what it was. Now let's imagine this young man had lived only a hundred years ago. Things would have changed a lot. His education would have lasted a little bit longer. It would have been co-ed, so he would have had a little more separation from his parents. Dating was still a little edgy back then. Um, he probably would have called on this young lady, but they wouldn't necessarily have gone on a, a date all on their own. He would have spent some time with her uh, around their family, and um, this was a perceived as progress because in a lot of ways everyone had a lot more choice in the process and what was happening, especially the young woman. But with more freedom would come more opportunity for, for sexual struggles. They probably would have gotten married in their late teens or early 20s, and so they definitely had to learn to exercise a little more self-control. What if Chuck had gotten to date like you? you know, things are rapidly changing. We all had considerably more freedom to make our own choices and, and freedom to make mistakes. Most of us were co-ed educated until 18. A lot of us as long as 22 to 24 years old. We have enormous freedom in choosing our future, not just our profession and not just our geography, where we were gonna live, but, but who we were gonna be friends with and who we were gonna hang out with and more importantly, who we were gonna date. And there's a really good chance most of your parents didn't meet your spouse until you were already pretty smitten and not planning on changing your mind. You know, the number is rapidly changing, but females today hit puberty around 10 to 11 years of age. They're not expected to marry into their mid to late 20s. It's, ab it's not abnormal for this to uh, go on to an even older age. So most of us dated longer, 10 years or more maybe, experienced more freedom than we ever had before. 
And we did so in a society that's saturated with sexual advertising and, and sexual agendas and lowered sexual inhibitions. Birth control is easy to get and sex and pornography usage is assumed. Let's all just admit that it's very difficult to make wise sexual choices and it doesn't seem to be getting easier as time goes on. We struggle with it today as adults and we see our children assaulted by it even more than we ever were. And it's easy to throw our hands up and begin making concessions. It's easy to begin to expect failure and move into damage control mode. I'm afraid we often find ourselves without really speaking it or without even maybe even giving it any real deliberate thought lowering our expectations. If we or our children had to fail in a direction, pornography would probably be the least damaging of the options we tell ourselves. After all, no one's getting pregnant watching porn. No one's getting STDs watching porn. No one's getting their heart broken watching porn. No one's getting their securities taken advantage of watching pornography. And, and we know that it's wrong, but it's assumed to be the lesser of two evils. And in fact, some of you, maybe more than we would like to admit, regularly watch pornography or read a lot of erotic literature that's designed to create sexual arousing images in your mind. And I would guess for those of you who do, you know that it's wrong but you feel like it's better than the alternative. I would guess for many of us tonight, this is tied to sexual brokenness that might have reared its head during our teenage years. Maybe a pornography addiction or another bad sexual habit or a sexual habit of your spouse that's made intimacy difficult. Many of you have silently wrestled with sexuality for five or 10 or 15 or 20 or, or 30 years. And that's part of the reason that I, I bring up these early days. I, Sometimes I probably pick on y'all a little bit, kids, um, but I hope you never feel that way. We just remember being in your shoes, and we want you to do better than us. You know, I'm thankful that we get to talk about sexuality because it's needed. And as awkward as it might be, I'm thankful that we get to talk about pornography tonight because I believe it has been wrongly assumed to be the lesser than. <clears throat> I believe it's wrong for us to view it as the preferred sin if we had to choose because I don't believe that that's the case. As a society and even within the church, we are sexually broken and desensitized and pornography is a huge culprit. It's the mind maggot that feasts on our insides, silently destroying and seldom detected. Pornography is easy and it's everywhere and it's normalized. And that means we need to talk about it. So the first question we ask is, what does the Bible say? We've already established through our other lessons in this series that sexual intercourse outside of the husband-wife marriage relationship is sinful. But pornography wasn't really a thing 2,000 years ago, so how do we think about it biblically? So we kind of nudge up to this topic. It's important to start with a foundational principle. God has always been concerned with more than our actions. In fact, his primary concern has always been for our hearts. This is firmly established within the Ten Commandments. It's repeated throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs, and it's drawn attention to by even Christ himself. In Exodus 2017, where we see the, the Ten Commandments wrapping up, we read this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. See, these Israelites had already been told not to commit adultery. They had already been told not to steal. But God used one of these Ten Commandments to remind them that what happened under the surface mattered. Don't just stay away from the action, God said. Avoid the wanting. Avoid the desire, God said. Like the rest of the Ten Commandments, the principle here is found throughout all of Scripture. Look at Proverbs 6.25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Here we have a father talking to his son about avoiding sexual ruin, and he knows exactly where things start. Not with outward action, but with an inward thought. A desire. Scripture is full of examples of how this works. Probably the closest example we have to pornography in Scripture comes in Ezekiel 23, 14 through 17. It reads, But she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waist with flowing turbans on their heads, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. And when she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her in the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoring lust. And after she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. Her sin began with images that provoked lust. This was the starting point of it all. We read the same progression in the New Testament. James 1, 14 through 15 says this, But each person is, is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has, gives birth, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives, brings forth death. God cares about our hearts, not because the body and mind are separate, and this matters more, but rather because they are intertwined. And the heart is the wellspring from which everything flows. Sin of the heart is not benign, and it never stays there. It always finds its way out, and it has an effect. Jesus hits this point home during his Sermon on the Mount with these familiar words. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus understood that lustful intent was just as damaging as the outward action. Sin happens in the heart, and even if it doesn't make it out, which it usually does, it's still sin, it is still damaging, and it still matters. So let me be clear. Pornography and erotic literature is sinful because it creates desires in our mind and heart that are displeasing to God. But let's take this a step further. Why are these thoughts displeasing to God? Because sex is good, and even sexually broken thoughts undermine the God-given blessings found in sex. Because God is not holding something back from you, if you'll remember. God is keeping you from something harmful in his sexual ethic. Let's look at what pornography does to the three God-given blessings of sex, life, pleasure, and oneness. We'll start with life. You know, one of the beautiful blessings of sex in the context of marriage is life. Be fruitful and multiply, God said in Genesis chapter 1. And yet we see in so much of our society, and especially in pornography, that life is portrayed as quite an inconvenience. 
Life is portrayed as a liability. In fact, one of the reasons we view pornography as safer than premarital sex or an affair is because, is because life isn't a possibility with pornography. But further than that, I, I think we can go a step further. In John 10.10, 10, we read this. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. More than just taking away a new life, pornography pulls us away from an abundant life. Unfortunately, it's not a harmless image on a screen, but an image of a real-life person whose abundant life is being destroyed, often through abuse and drugs. Communities around adult stores are fraught with crime. Crimes that are sexual in nature are almost universally associated with pornography use. Pornography is ruining the self-esteem of our ladies who can never look like these people, and it's ruining the self-esteem of our men who can never perform like these men. Pornography is ruining our idea of what it means to be a man and a woman. It's training us to be sexual consumers instead of sexual givers, and each of these things causes us to live a duller and less abundant and less fulfilling life. In pornography, Satan steals and kills and destroys from the inside out. We look at pleasure. You know, beautiful blessing of sex in the context of marriage is pleasure. The writer of Proverbs tells us to rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breast fill you with delight. Be intoxicated in her love. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. You might argue that pornography's draw is just this, pleasure, and, and that's true, but it's a temporary pleasure. Pornography works on the same pleasure receptors in the brain as illegal drugs. In fact, it overstimulates them. What happens when the pleasure centers in our brains are overstimulated? Well, our body desensitizes them and removes some of them, and it requires more and more to work correctly. This is why we find pornography use often moves to pornography addiction. This is why we find that pornography use often escalates into more and more um, aberrant forms, ending up promoting violence and oppression and crimes against children. This is why an alarming number of men, especially young men, are struggling now with erectile dysfunction. Don't fall for the trap of pornography bringing pleasure, because pornography destroys it. Or we look at oneness. Probably one of the most profound blessings in the context of marriage is oneness. In Genesis 2, we read that the two became one flesh. And this reality has been confirmed biochemically with modern medicine. Women release oxytocin and men release vasopressin during sex. Oxytocin is also released during breastfeeding, and it's responsible for forming a bond between a woman and her child or a woman and the person who she has slept with. The vasopressin molecule it works similarly for men. Sometimes it's called the monogamy molecule, and it does a similar thing with him. When these bonds form and then are broken, deep emotional pain is the result. And the more that they are broken, the less the person is able to form this bond. Pornography causes these chemicals to be released when nothing but a screen or a page is present for the bonding to occur. And in a similar way as before, these pathways become less effective over time. And what this does is it diminishes the oneness between spouses if you're married, and it decreases the experience of oneness with a future spouse. God's sexual guidance for us, even in the realm of sexual fantasy and desire, is ultimately for our benefit. 
Pornography distorts reality. It's addictive. It's harmful to yourself. It harms other humans, and it ultimately hardens our heart. So now we come to the part of the lesson that I struggle with the most. Because it's one thing, a really uncomfortable thing, to stand up here and talk about all of the damage of pornography. Or any sexual sin, really. It's one thing to do that, and it's another thing to tell you what to do about it. Most of us look pretty similar on the outside. We generally present ourselves as good, as happy, and I would guess that this does not always reflect the reality of what we see in the mirror at home. I would say as pertains to this discussion, we have three main groups here. Those who have avoided sexual sin and find this lesson to be affirming. And you understand and see that God designed sex as good or perhaps you're single and you've come to see that God-centered celibacy is good. And this is a, I would argue, probably a smaller subset of people than we would like to admit. But we are thankful for you. We praise God for you and the wisdom and hope you bring to those of us who are broken. I think that there's another group, those who have gotten caught by sexual sin and have escaped or, or maybe are in the process of escaping. You also affirm the truth that I've presented tonight, except you can, also, you can affirm the pain I've spoken of in a very real way. When Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You know all too well what he meant. Sexual sin impacts us deeply, and many of us here have felt the pain. Now, you may not be fixed, but you are on your way to sexual sanctification. I praise God for you and for the way that you're displaying his goodness to creation and for the wisdom that you can give to those of us who are broken. And then there's a third group, those who are stuck in sexual sin and don't feel like they can get out. And you affirm the truth that I've presented tonight, as well as the pain, but for some of you it feels hopeless. These three different groups are not as different as they might first seem. There's no worthiness ranking. I'm going to work in a sports analogy here so y'all will be proud of me because I don't like sports. <clears throat> there is no varsity, JV, and freshman team. All right, The playing field is level. We're all broken and wounded even if it's in different ways. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I think that we need to start here and we need to turn off this taboo, behavior-based sin ranking system. If you're having sex and not married, or in the middle of an affair, or a practicing homosexual, or are addicted to pornography, hear me clearly. God has forgiven sexual sin countless times since the beginning of the ages, and he is willing and able to forgive yours. Jesus gave his blood for it. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your sexual sin will have consequences that you likely won't be able to escape. If you're having sex and not married, it's going to affect your marriage. If you're having an affair, it will affect your marriage and your children. If you're looking at pornography, it's going to put scars on your heart and make future relationships different, and it's going to damage the current relationships that you have. But it can be forgiven, and if you have been baptized and covered by the blood of Christ, it has. Forgiveness doesn't wait and kick in when you have all of the sin in your life killed. In fact, look at what Paul writes in Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
while we were enemies. You know, I love the language of Paul in Colossians where it says that our life is hidden with Christ in chapter 3, verse 3. It's important at the onset of this conversation to be very clear. God is not afraid of your brokenness. He's not unwilling to help because of the nature of your sin, and he doesn't attach strings to your salvation. At least we say he doesn't, but even that we wrestle with. In fact, quickly after verse 3, Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So I ask myself this, if our life is hidden with Christ, why does it matter? Why does he care? It would seem as if there kind of are strings attached. And so, so I wonder, why does he instantly call us to this? Let me propose a couple of different reasons. First of all, I think that we glorify God in our bodies in the way that we live. When we live different than the world, they can't help but wonder how and why and want to be a part of that. Secondly, I think that we can live fuller and more joyful lives when our sin is put to death. Um, we've made this amply clear in the case of sexual sin. God wants what is best for you, and Satan wants to steal it. So we can open our eyes, and we can look at the damage that our culture's sexual ethic is, is doing to people in society, and that becomes clear. And finally, God knows that our daily choices shape us. He continues to give us choice. And if, even after baptism, we continue to submit our bodies to sin, Satan can harden our hearts again. And this is where I want to get really practical tonight. Because the line gets pretty blurry. How do we know if we're saved or if we're living in rebellion? You can look at pornography and be saved. But what if you don't stop looking at pornography? Does God eventually turn his back on you? My answer to that is no. But continually looking at pornography will cause you to turn your back on him, as will persisting in any sin. Paul actually uses this language a lot. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, he says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So if you continue to plant the seeds of the flesh... That's what you're going to harvest. Or in Romans 6.19, Paul states it like this. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We see it again here, but in different language. Every day we choose who we're going to present our members to. God's desire is our sanctification. Sanctification is, is the long-term change that occurs in the life of a Christian that, that makes us holy and makes us look more like him. Church, you are always being formed into something, and your daily choices are going to determine whether you're being shaped to look like God or to look like sin. And persistent sin can harden our hearts and turn us away from God. But the flip side is also true persistent presentation of our bodies to God leads to sanctification. Sowing to the Spirit yields a harvest of eternal life. 
Now, we often think this means that when we good, do good things, the balance skews towards God, and when we do bad things, the balance skews towards Satan. In other words, we think that if we just navigate away from that page that we know we shouldn't be at on our computer, then we get a point. But if we stay on that page, then we lose a point. And there's this big points system piling up, and it, really what it matters is at the end, of the end of the ages is who did you present yourself more to? God or Satan. And, and I really think that that's a misnomer because what we're looking at that there is, is, is self-control. Self-control is great. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, but it's very different from an act of submission to the Spirit. If self-control, if outward actions, if choices could fix us, then the Old Testament law would have been sufficient for people, but it wasn't. Presenting our members to God, sowing to the Spirit, means subjecting ourselves to His working. And I believe this is best done through three spiritual disciplines. I could argue for more, but I'm going to stick with three tonight. The first is scripture reading and meditation. In Luke 4, 1 through 13, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and in response to every temptation of Satan, Jesus responds with scripture. It is written. In Psalms 1, we read about the man who meditates on the word of God, and he's spoken of as a tree who's planted by streams of water, someone who is rooted and stable and nourished. When we press our hearts into the truth of God's word, we subject ourselves to him and allow him to work. The second is time with God and prayer. Jesus did this all the time. In Romans 8.26, we read that the prayer, in prayer, the, the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words, interceding for us when we don't know what we even need. Jesus made a frequent habit of prayer. In Mark 1.35, we, we read of Jesus retreating to a desolate place to pray, and he did that over and over again. In fact, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he said, this is something that you go and that you do in private. When we pray, we open our hearts to God, and he can work. And the third is living in accountable Christian community. If the church is the bride of Christ, like Paul says in Ephesians 5, then being part of the church is how you will grow in your covenant relationship with him. In Galatians 6.2, we're called to bear one another burdens. In James 5.16, we're called to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we would be healed. The people of God are a powerful part of his tangible working in this world. And when we subject ourselves to the church, we open our hearts to him. So I don't want to sound trite, and I don't want to sound simplistic, but I do want you to understand this. You can't fix your sin, but you can do things that allow him to fix it. And scripture, and prayer, and Christian community are three of the big ones. You know, there isn't a magic wand that we get to wave and make our sin disappear. Jesus makes the guilt of our sin disappear when we are baptized. But releasing the hold that sin has on our heart is a process. Romans 6.19 said that presenting our members to righteousness leads to sanctification. So here's my advice to those of you struggling with sin. See the big picture. A plant isn't harvested the day the seed is sown. You may sin and, and think that it doesn't matter much today, but it has great potential to grow as you continue to sow and water. But the flip side is also true. You may be sowing to the Spirit and feeling like it isn't making a bit of difference. But I can guarantee you 
that God is working in those planted seeds to grow something great. We're not in an off-again, off-on-again relationship with God. We are either moving further from Him or closer to Him on a, on a large spectrum. So I would encourage you not to let a single mistake or even a stack of mistakes cause you to lose hope or especially not to cause you to stop fighting. God's most concerned with our hearts because from it our actions flow, but our hearts are shaped by our actions as well. Your sin is not benign. Your outer and inner self are, are inseparable. Your sinful actions pull you away from God, but there are things he has shown us to do that give him a handhold and let him drag us back towards him. Scripture, prayer, and Christian community. You know, perhaps your heart doesn't look like it should tonight. Neither does mine. You can't fix it, but you can present it to God so that he will work on it. We get to participate in the fight, but the power is not ours. So what do we do? We don't stop presenting our hearts to him. Maybe you're struggling with pornography. Maybe it's another sin. I would encourage you to not surrender. Don't pretend like it's okay. Don't ignore it. Understand that it's taking you places that you don't want to go. I encourage you to fight. Fight for, fight for the glory of God. Fight for your family. Fight for your kids. Fight for your joy. Fight for this family. Fight. Hold out your heart to God every chance that you get. And then ask Him to do His work and be patient. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer with him. And share. Don't do it alone. The process of repairing your brokenness and growing towards him is a, is a non-issue if you're not saved. He doesn't work this way in non-believers. And even if you manage to quit squeak out something that appeared good, your, your guilt would remain. The only way to wash the slate clean and to begin movement toward him is by being joined to Christ in baptism. So if you've studied and would like to do that, the water's ready. If you need help in your battle with sin, we stand prepared to partner with you. Whatever your need might be, come forward as we stand and as we sing.